seated. The Andrews ladies and gentlemen. If you are newer here, all three of those men are named Andrew, so that's why that's funny. Please take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We continue our sermon series through the book of Exodus and now this 10-week series through the Ten Commandments. Our text this morning, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. The Holy Spirit says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth We believe that your word is the truth. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm pretty sure that I could drive from Detroit to Louisville, Kentucky, blindfolded, because I've made that trip a lot, especially when Bethany and I first started dating, and she's still lived in Michigan while she was finishing up high school, and I was already going to college in Kentucky. Made that drive a lot. And whenever you're making a familiar drive, there are always certain landmarks that break up the trip for you. You know, you know. once I get to this point, once I get to that point. One of those landmarks for me between Detroit and Louisville, Kentucky, is off I-75 between Dayton and Cincinnati, there is a church on the east side of I-75 and for years had this giant statue of Jesus. And we used to call him Touchdown Jesus because his arms were lifted up in the air like this. And... uh, Uh, Dr. Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Seminary, once described this Jesus statue as ugly as it is big. Somewhere between 12 and 15 years ago, this giant Jesus statue was struck by lightning. You can draw your own conclusions about that. There was a new statue that was subsequently built. Now we call it hug it out, bro, Jesus, because he's, he's kind of standing like this, like he wants to hug it out. Um, what's funny, though, is the new statue has a lightning rod <laughs> coming out of the top of Jesus' head, because you know live and learn, right? That lesson was learned. Well, you know what else is true is that the second commandment has been a bit of a lightning rod for the 2,000-year history of the Christian church. For hundreds of years, 
uh, Christians created images of Jesus Christ in paintings and statues, other forms of art. But since the Protestant Reformation, uh, Protestant churches and Protestant Christians have debated whether or not these images of Jesus are actually a form of breaking the second commandment. How are we to think about artistic depictions of God in general and then of Jesus Christ specifically? The second commandment builds on the first commandment in that it calls us to think through the very nature of the one true God. Who is this one true God? Can he be seen? Beyond that, how do we rightly worship the one true God in light of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ? The second commandment does build on the first commandment, and the first commandment, as we saw last week, reveals to us the one true God whom we are to worship. The second commandment then reveals how we are to worship him. We saw last week in Exodus chapter 20 as God gave his people the Decalogue, he reminds them that they have been redeemed from slavery. Exodus 20 verse 1, And God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. This one true God is the God who created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2. And he is the God who redeemed them through the exodus. And after reminding them of their salvation, because remember we mentioned last week that In terms of the gospel, in terms of God's salvation, the indicative always precedes the imperative. God saves us, and then he calls us to obedience. God does not call us to obedience in order to save us. So God reminds his people that he saved them, and now he calls them to obedience. In the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. God commands his people to worship him alone. But God also does not leave the manner of worship up to his people. God does not say, you shall have no other gods before me, and however you feel fit to worship me, do so. No, he gives his people the order, the manner in which they must worship him. In the second commandment, Yahweh instructs his people, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And the Lord's ban on images is not arbitrary. His ban on images and worship is grounded in the very nature of who God is. You see, the God we worship, the one true God, is the God who speaks. In fact, the self-revelation of God is the basis for our epistemology. Now, what is epistemology? Epistemology means the theory of knowledge. How do we know stuff? What's a big word for how we know stuff? Epistemology. The very basis, what I'm saying now, is the only way we know anything in general and the only way we know anything about God specifically 
is because God told us. That's the only way. We only know God because God spoke. As Francis Schaeffer once said, God is there and he is not silent. Throughout the Old Testament, God always communicated with his creation through speaking. Genesis 1 tells us that God created the heavens and the earth by speaking. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke to Adam. God spoke to Noah. God spoke to Abraham. God spoke to Moses. Scripture also reminds us that it is indeed grace that God would speak to us at all. Pastor Mike, in the Confession and Pardon, read from the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. If, if you were to go on and read in Deuteronomy 5 and 6 after the Lord gives the Ten Commandments, Scripture says this in Deuteronomy 5, 26, For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? God's people are the ones who have heard God's voice and have lived. They did not see God. They heard God. Not only does Scripture reveal to us that God's self-revelation is primarily audible and not visual, but the Bible also stresses the discontinuity between the pagan idols and the one true God. You see, God, this God who is giving Israel these ten words, is the creator. Everything else is creation. God is holy. That means God is different. God is other. There is everything that exists in all of creation— from the smallest atom to the farthest reaches of the universe. That is all creation. God is creator. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is uncreated. God is, and he was, and he will forever be. God is not a physical being. The scripture tells us that God is spirit. In contrast, the pagan idols of the ancient Near East were created by men. These idols have physical form, unlike God, who has no physical form. These idols have physical form because they are creation. These idols are seen but not heard. God is heard, but not seen. You read in 1 Kings chapter 18 of the epic showdown between Elijah and the worshipers of Baal. And the worshipers of Baal are spending hours trying to get their God to speak. They're calling out to their God to answer them, and they're cutting themselves and there's nothing, no response. 
Elijah even mocks these prophets and priests and says, where is your God? Is he sleeping? Maybe he had to go to the bathroom. Why isn't he answering you? Elijah knew what Psalm 121 verse 4 says that of of the true God, behold, he who keeps Israel will, will neither slumber nor sleep. And then, of course, Yahweh displays his glory and his might in 1 Kings 18. Idolatry is revealed as absurd all over the scripture. And it is no more clear than in Isaiah 44, verses 13 through 17. Listen to this as I read it. Isaiah 44, 13 through 17. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself by it and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. Man makes a God out of the same wood he's using to cook his dinner. And he says, deliver me. God delivers us and then says, worship me. The second commandment not only speaks to the nature of God, but also to his characteristics, namely his jealousy. God is the one true God. He has redeemed his people, and he demands their exclusive worship. And oftentimes we hear the term jealousy, and we think of Jealousy as petty or immature or controlling, but not God's jealousy. God's jealousy is holy. There is holy jealousy. You men who are married, think about the jealousy that you have for your wife. That is a holy jealousy. I'm jealous for my wife. No one else is allowed to kiss my wife. Except me. I'm not petty for feeling that. That's holy. It's right. We're going to have some trouble if someone tries to do that. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to win, but I'm going to die trying. 
The same is true for God's jealousy, except it's perfect. Because God is the holy creator and he is the only one worthy of worship. So if God were to not be jealous, if God were to say, hey, that's cool, worship whatever you want, he would cease to be perfect and he would cease to be God. Because God is always right. God is holy in his perfections and he is jealous for his own name. He is a jealous God. When he tells Israel that he is a jealous God, in verse four, he then forbids images of God in any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Just so we're clear, that means everywhere. The sky, the land, the sea. It is interesting. It's the same pattern followed in the creation account. God created all that's in the sky and all that's on the land and all that's in the sea. Don't worship the creation, worship the creator. He tells us not to make images that represent him of anything that is on the earth because no created image accurately represents God. Because God is immortal, invisible, God only wise. Then in verses 5 and 6, the Lord warns that idolatry is a sin that leads to death. He says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Those who break covenant with the Lord, those who practice sin, those who practice idolatry, will have iniquity visited on them to three and four generations. Those who embrace idolatry bring death on their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. But those who worship the one true God, those who keep covenant with the one true God, they will be blessed to a thousand generations. Look at this in verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. A couple things about verse 6. Number one, that phrase steadfast love. We've mentioned this before. That's the Hebrew term hesed. uh, The best translation of it would be covenant faithfulness. So, So Yahweh shows covenant faithfulness to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. And notice also... If you have the ESV, I don't know about other translations, but the ESV, uh, the word thousands there, there's a footnote, and at the bottom said it could be translated thousands or it could be translated to the thousandth generation. So notice that, that the idolatry of sin is going to have consequences to the third and fourth generation. God's wrath is real and there are consequences for sin. Anyone who has a parent or a grandparent who was an alcoholic or a drug addict or abusive or an adulterer or whatever, you know there are generational consequences for sin. But notice how different this is. He he says that the idolatry, that pain will be felt to the third and the fourth generation, but to those who follow him, it's to a thousand generations. What's another way of saying that? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. 
God's grace being poured out. But it's, it's real and it's important. And that's why Yahweh would forbid Israel from intermarrying with pagan women. God did not command this because he's a racist and because he didn't want good Jewish boys marrying Gentile girls. No, God warned his people of intermarrying because they would end up worshiping the pagan gods of their foreign wives. This is exactly what happened to King Solomon. Read through Kings and read through Chronicles. But long before King Solomon broke the second commandment, Israel had broken the second commandment. In fact, while Moses was on the mountain with Yahweh, Aaron fashions a golden calf for the people and they worship the calf as if it is Yahweh. Now, this is what's interesting. Sometimes we miss this because people get confused and they think Israel, they, they were turning from Yahweh and they were just worshiping this golden calf as if the golden calf was their, their God. That's not what they were doing. They were trying to have an image to represent Yahweh. Right? They were still saying, this is Yahweh who brought us out of slavery in Egypt, Okay, but we need something to see. We need something tangible. So we made this golden calf. They were saying that the golden calf accurately represented Yahweh, the Lord. And of course, that brought nothing but death, destruction, and the wrath of God. Because the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. And death spread to all men because all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God did not give his people the image of a man or an animal. What did God give his people in the Old Covenant? His word. He spoke to them. Pastor Andrew led us in our historical reading this morning from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 52 gives us the three reasons why God gave us the second commandment. Number one, because God is sovereign, a.k.a. he can do whatever he wants. He doesn't need your permission to do anything. Number two, because God owns his people. He redeemed them. He is the king who conquered. They are no longer subject to Egypt. They are subject to Yahweh. And thirdly, because God is zealous for his own worship. God cares about how he's worshiped. God is sovereign over all things. Specifically, God is sovereign over his people. And God has the right to determine how he is worshipped. God has revealed himself not through an image, but through his word. And the New Testament reveals to us that it was the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 His name is Jesus, and Jesus is the one who both followed and fulfilled the second commandment. Jesus Christ followed and fulfilled the second commandment. Jesus is the fulfillment of the second commandment because he is the true image of God. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus was in the form of God. In our call to worship, Pastor Bobby read from uh, Colossians chapter 1 where Jesus is called the image of the invisible God. 
Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So that answers the question, why did God never give his people an image to represent him? God never gave his people an image to accurately portray him because Jesus is the only accurate depiction of the image of God. And just as we saw in the first commandment, Jesus of Nazareth is not only the fulfillment of the second commandment, but Jesus is the only human in history who ever rightly followed the second commandment. Jesus is the only man who ever lived who truly viewed God properly. And through his obedience to the second commandment, Jesus kept the law. And so Jesus Jesus was able to stand before God as the spotless lamb of God. The active righteousness of Jesus was offered up to God as he paid the penalty for the sins of his people on the cross. Jesus' active righteousness is the reason why death could not hold him down. And so on the third day, Jesus walked out of the tomb as the resurrected image of God. So the clearest picture of God, the clearest image of God that we have is the word picture given to us in Scripture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's, let's say that one more time because that's really important. The clearest image of God that we have is the word picture given to us in Scripture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in the Bible that we are told of Jesus. Scripture is where we are told of the person and work of Jesus. Church, we do not see Jesus. We are told of Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. The image of God that we worship is the picture painted for us of Jesus in Scripture. So this leads to the logical question. It has to. What about pictures of Christ? We're all familiar with Renaissance art depicting Christ from Leonardo da Vinci and others. And and that image of Jesus has certainly permeated our culture, hasn't it? I went to Bible college with a guy named Tony who looked just like Renaissance Jesus. Okay? If, If... if medieval Jesus was in human form, Tony Lissetto was him. He had long, you know, long hair, beard, good-looking dude. He actually pastors in Cleveland now. Um, so one time, we're out in the J-Bowl. The J-Bowl is like the, the lawn of the seminary. I don't want to get too off track here. It's named the J-Bowl because there's, there's, a, there's lore that a bunch of students buried a bunch of Josephus books in the middle of the lawn. Who knows if that's true or not? But anyway, we call it the J-Bowl. It's a big seminary lawn in the middle of the seminary, and a bunch of guys are out there throwing a football around, and Tony keeps dropping passes. 
And so at one point, one guy yells out, don't throw it to Jesus, he can't catch. Because Tony looked like that stereotypical, you know, medieval Renaissance art Jesus that we're all familiar with. Point being, it's, it's permeated Western culture. We're all familiar with it. And so here's the deal. The argument for artistic depictions of Jesus is that Jesus was an actual man seen by actual men, right? 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's a fair point, right? Jesus was a man. God is spirit, but Jesus of Nazareth is a man. And people saw him. That being said, God in his providence chose not to leave us any pictures of Jesus. And I'd venture a guess that when most of us and most Westerners in general think of Jesus, they think of a European man with light skin, light hair, blue eyes, light beard, and that is not what Jesus looked like. Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jew. Jesus had dark skin, dark hair, dark eyes. The book of Isaiah says if you had seen him, you wouldn't think anything of him. He was a man. So while the debate will rage on, sorry to disappoint, I don't think we're going to solve this one for all of Christendom this morning. I'll give you my two cents, though. Here's my two cents, all right? If you disagree with me, don't bull rush me. I'm not saying that you're going to hell if you disagree with this. This is my two cents on it. I do not believe that artistic depictions of Jesus are inherently wrong. I think that we can have artistic depictions of Jesus and it not be sin because Jesus is an historical man. Jesus is a man who's seated at the right hand of the Father, where he has been for 2,000 plus years. There's a group of guys from church uh, doing a Bible study, and Kevin Osborne um, shared a profound thought with the group about the beauty of different artwork depicting Jesus in his humanity. Because you'll see images you know, of Jesus that are white European Jesus, probably the most popular, but also in African-American community and churches, there'll be images of, of you know, Jesus that are black or Middle Eastern. And, and Kev's point was that what people are saying is that, that Jesus is like us. And there's a sense in which that's true. There's a beauty in people recognizing that. Jesus is truly human, right? Jesus became like us in order to redeem us. People identify with Jesus in his humanity, and people should. By the same token, if we are thinking of these depictions when we worship Jesus, we are breaking the second commandment. So I will, this is where I land on it. It is not inherently wrong to have images of Jesus. If you are thinking of those images in worship, you are breaking the second commandment. Because 
That is not Jesus. That's an artistic rendering of Jesus. These images of Jesus, especially the European Jesus that so many of us think of, the same touchdown Jesus or hug it out bro Jesus that was off of I-75, are not Jesus. The only image of Christ God has left for us is the word picture given in Scripture. And so we ought not to use Leonardo da Vinci's Jesus or Mel Gibson's Jesus or any other visual of Jesus for worship. It is only the Jesus given to us in the word that saves us. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ revealed in the Bible is the good news that reconciles God and man. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It's not the picture of a meek European man that changes hearts. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture that raises hearts from the dead. And so as we consider now as a church, as we consider how Christ Community Church in 2023 ought to follow the second commandment, the first thing that we have to say is that it is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we can obey the second commandment. It is impossible for a non-Christian to obey the second commandment. If you are not a Christian, you must repent of your sin and you must place your faith in Christ alone. To repent of your sin means to turn from your sin and to turn toward Christ. It's a change of perspective. It's a change of direction. It's an acknowledgement that the Bible is right in calling you a sinner who deserves hell. It is to confess that that is true, that I deserve the wrath of God through eternal conscious punishment in hell because of my sin. I acknowledge that. I confess that. I repent of my sin. I want to turn away from my sin. And then to place your faith in Jesus encompasses three facets, knowledge, assent, and trust. What is knowledge? Knowledge means that you know who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Assent means to believe that it actually happened, to believe that it's true. The, the facts about the person and work of Christ are real. They're history. And finally, you must transfer your trust to Jesus alone. And what that means is that your only confidence to stand before God is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's step one. It is, imp it is impossible to follow the second commandment if, you, if your faith is not in Jesus. And so we plead with you, we beg with you even this morning, if you are not a Christian, the gospel is calling you. Repent and believe. Turn to Jesus. Be right with God. After you believe in Jesus, 
The second commandment then reveals the idols that we struggle with. We mentioned that last week. Because, again, the second commandment is falling under the umbrella of the first commandment. We're not to worship any other gods. Part of that is how we worship God. But like Pastor Mike said, the law reveals our sin. It reveals that we need to be told not to worship any other gods. We don't need to be told how to sin. Right? Anyone who has children understands that. Figure that one out on your own and you figure it out pretty quickly. We need to be told how to be holy. We need to be told how to obey. The second commandment, like all the others, have both positive and negative connotations. Negatively, the second commandment forbids use of any unauthorized images of God in worship. Positively, the second commandment requires that we view God exclusively through the image that he has revealed to us, namely the image of his son in Scripture. So to break the second commandment is to practice idolatry. And what we see in Scripture is that the root of idolatry is self-worship. That's where idolatry comes from. We believe that we ought to be God. That's the lie that the serpent told Eve. You can be like God. Pagan idols were man-made. Men created idols, admired their work, and then gave these idols their devotion. It's lunacy. It's image confusion. Why do we do that? Why have people throughout history been tempted to create an idol and then to worship that idol as if it is God? We create gods, we create idols in our image because then we're in control. Some of our kids have been reading about the ancient Greek pantheon in some books they got from the school library. And if you're familiar with that at all, you know that the Greek gods were petty, man-like deities. Read up on Zeus, read up on Poseidon and Venus and all of them. They are gods created in the image of man. They are lust-filled, vengeful, sinful creations. Idols made in our own image give us comfort. Because when our gods are broken like we are, then we're not accountable to a perfect standard. If Zeus is your god, and he's given to to lust and anger and vengeance and murder, well, then what do you have to worry about, right? He's the God, and he's doing that stuff. That's not the God of the Bible. The one true God is holy. The one true God is perfect in all his attributes. If the God of Scripture is the one true God, then there is a standard we must live up to. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And while we may not be tempted to worship Zeus or a golden calf, what we do is we create our own image of God that suits our sensibilities. Sometimes this God, this idol, is lawless. Sometimes he's legalistic. 
But either way, whenever we create an idol, whenever we create a God, it falls short of the glory of the one true God. Our culture, this Western, maybe you know, post-Christian Western culture we could call it, hopefully pre-Christian <laughs> Western culture, but certainly post right now, our culture majors on creating a lawless God made in our own image. People will say things like, well, I could never believe in a God that would send people to hell. I just couldn't. I could never believe in a God who would kill his own son. I could never believe in a God who's concerned with what consenting people do in their own bedroom. What are people doing here? What are they saying? They're taking their own lawless desires and presuppositions and they're creating a God in their own image. They are rejecting God's self-revelation in Scripture for their own God. But if that's true, think about it for a moment. If that's true, then how impotent is your God? If God has to agree with all of your sensibilities... What if your sensibilities change? On the flip side, many Christians have created a legalistic God in their own fundamentalist image. Oh, I could never believe in a God who would allow people to drink alcohol. Never mind that Jesus, who was God incarnate, drank alcohol and was notorious for hanging out with drunkards. And if anyone tries to tell you that the wine in Scripture was not alcohol, they are grammatically and historically ignorant. Don't listen to that foolishness. If that were true, then they wouldn't be getting drunk at the Eucharist in Corinth. All the wine in the Bible had alcohol, and Jesus drank it. I could never believe in a God who would let people get tattoos or smoke or dance or play cards or watch movies or let women wear pants or let women have short hair or let man have long hair or whatever silly legalism your heart is struggling with. These Pharisees are doing the same thing that our culture is doing. They are applying their own self-righteous presuppositions to create a God in their own image. This problem is inherent to all of humanity because as we mentioned last week, all people were created in the image of God and so all humans are born worshipers. We either worship the God of the Bible, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or we worship something else. In the book of Acts, Paul makes reference to the altar of the unknown God. Why was there an altar to an unknown God? Because humans instinctively know that they have to worship something or someone. We also inherently know that we are finite, that we're going to die, that, that we're not going to last forever. 
We're reminded of this with every funeral that we attend. That's why it's in vogue now in our culture to to just stop doing funerals altogether because people don't want to contemplate death. But we know. We know inherently that there is something that's bigger than us. And that's why people want to give their life to a cause. That's why wealthy people create foundations and participate in philanthropy because they want their life to be defined by something more than mere wealth. They want to contribute to something that will outlast their life. We all know that. We have to find value in something that will outlive us. Some people look for it in family or work or politics or religion. Think about all the silly movements. Remember Occupy Wall Street? Does anyone remember that? What was that, like 12, 13 years ago? Who remembers that? Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, how long did that last? Everybody wants a movement. You know, everybody wants something that they can give themselves to that's bigger than them. The truth is that eternal value is only found in the one who is the image of the invisible God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that cause that you want to give your life to, that cause that you want to outlive you, can only be found in the mission of the kingdom of Christ lived out in the church. The church is the cause. The gospel is the cause. The mission is the cause. God has ordained that we would see his image. He said no images because he has ordained that we would see his image primarily through the preaching of his son in the Bible. Every Sunday at church. That means that even more important than reading your Bible on your own is that you gather with the church for the preaching of the word. Now, don't get me wrong. Reading your Bible is a good thing. Read your Bible as much as you can. We have a, a church-wide scripture reading plan you could jump in on if you want to. But I am telling you this. I am telling you that if you were to ask God which is more important, reading my Bible by myself or sitting under the preaching of the word at church, that this is what he would tell you. That you could never read your Bible alone again and it wouldn't necessarily be sin. But if you neglect gathering as a church under the preaching of the word, it is sin. Because the image of Christ is seen through the preaching of the word as the assembly gathers. So how do we keep the second commandment? We gather every Sunday with the local church around the word and the sacraments. We see the image of Jesus as he is preached from every verse in the Bible. We see Jesus in the only two sacraments that he gave us, baptism and the Eucharist. These are the means of grace that save us. They are the means of grace that sanctify us. Are you looking for a cause to give your life to? Give your life to the mission of the kingdom of Christ in the local church.
So the, so the statue, right? Hug it out, bro, Jesus. Formally touchdown, Jesus. It's got a lightning rod coming out of the top of his head. So apropos for the second commandment. Because the second commandment has been and continues to be a lightning rod among Protestant Christians. So we can continue to debate and discuss the extent to which images specifically of Jesus are appropriate, but one thing that we can say for certain is that if you want to see Jesus, look in the Bible. Because as we were all taught in kids' Sunday school, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask now that you would keep your promise that your word would not return void. We ask that you would keep the promise that your son made that the gates of hell would not prevail against your church. Father, we ask for any who are in the gathering this morning who have not repented and trusted in Jesus that your Holy Spirit would work regeneration in their hearts so that they, their eyes would be open to see the beauty of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and that they would lay all of their trust down on Jesus. Father, I pray for your people that we would be sanctified in the truth. Father, that we would love the second commandment, that we would love to hear your son Jesus preached from your word and seen in your sacraments. Father, that we would be thankful for the true humanity of Jesus. That your son became incarnate and lived without sin and died and was buried and he resurrected and he ascended and now as a man in his humanity and in his divinity, he sits at your right hand reigning over your church and your world and that he, that human Jesus of Nazareth will one day return to raise the dead, judge the world and make all things new. So Father, we praise you for the continuity of your son with our humanity, but Lord, may we also rightly understand the discontinuity there is no picture of Jesus that rightly represents Jesus. Lord, please forgive us if we have these images in our mind when we pray or when we sing or when we read your word. Father, we confess that we have broken the second commandment and that only Jesus kept it. But Father, we have confidence because we are in your Son. And we know that when you look on us, you see the righteousness of your Son, Jesus. Father, we ask now that you would bless us as we take his body and his blood. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.